All right, so last week we began this new series called Incarnate. I realized I forgot to explain what the word means, which is pretty fundamental. <laughs> but, uh, um, so when, when Christians talk about God becoming man, we use the word incarnate, incarnation. It means um, that he is like enfleshment, he took on flesh. But it, it doesn't have to only apply to Jesus. It um, is a word that just speaks about the fact that we are flesh, that we are incarnate, we are in bodies. And uh, it's a much more profound reality than maybe you've ever realized. And uh, it goes right to the heart of God's intention at the beginning of the Bible, creating the world, what he's been doing in the intervening time, why God sent Jesus as a man, and what he intends to do at the end of time in the rebuilding, the reclamation, the redemption of this world. And so what I wanted to do was work our way towards uh, Christmas and, you know, celebrating the birth of Jesus, the incarnation, by looking at it through this lens. What does it mean that God made us bodies and uh, you have this flesh with all of its beauty and all of its frustration? And why did God have to send Jesus as a man anyway? Why couldn't he have saved us some other way? So we're kind of working there, but I wanted to start a little bit further back. So last week we were looking at the whole idea of body beautiful. Um, the incredible reality of this physical creation and your, your physical nature and how we need to look at this through biblical eyes as a gift from God, enjoy them. And obviously on the back of that, I got a bunch of questions from some of you asking uh, like, just to explain aspects of this and what do we, how do we reconcile the fact that our bodies are not as they should be? which of course is where I intended to go anyway. So I was one step ahead of you. So today we're thinking, last week was body beautiful, today's body broken. I want to read these two passages and then we'll take it from there. 1 Peter 1, 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again, not of perishable seed but of imperishable through the living an abiding word of God. For all flesh, all our bodies, that means, all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Over in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, this is Paul wrestling with um, his own sense of frailty. He's just been talking about some of the sufferings he's experienced in the body as an apostle traveling from town to town, preaching. Um, he says, we're jars of clay. In other words, we're very weak bodies, but we have amazing treasure. We have the gospel. And then he, he talks about himself like this. He says from verse 16, 2 Corinthians four sixteen. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look, not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home, and here he's talking about his body, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent, we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we're still in this tent, we groan being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed. So there he's talking into that Greek mindset. He says, 
Our aim, our hope, our desire is not that we'll be spirits pulled out of our bodies and dwelling in, some, in the ether in some sense. He doesn't say we don't want to be naked. We don't want to be without our body. He says we want to be, have a new one instead. We would rather be further clothed. So he says, so that what is mortal, this body, may be swallowed up by life. Now he who has prepared for us this very thing is, is God, who has given us the spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we're at home in the body, we're away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage. And we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we're at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Right, so this passage in 1 Peter, the first one we read, is opening up for us the tension that we all felt after thinking about our bodies last week. And the tension is this, that on the one hand, there is glory in, in you. You're glorious. Your body is glorious. Some of you take very little persuasion about that. And the rest of you are struggling. No, 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 I'm not. But there is, that's what it says. All its glory, it says, is like the flower of grass. So the Bible's affirming on the one hand that there is some glory in you. You're magnificent. You're made in the image of God. I know when we think about what's the image of God, you probably think it has to do with the, the more invisible aspects of your human nature. Things like your um, creativity or um, your speech, your ability to speak, these kinds of things. And actually, the Bible doesn't say that. It says that God formed Adam and Eve in his image and that the body is obviously a part of that image. Now, how can that be true if God is spirit? And the answer is, well, we know that God can see. So he gave us eyes to image his ability to see. We know God can speak, so he gave us a mouth. God can hear, and so on and so on. Your body is part of you imaging God, and therefore is something extraordinary, glorious, and beautiful. And one of the things that we were trying to work our way towards is understanding that if God made this earth good, he made your physical nature good, then we are meant to enjoy it with gratitude. We're not world haters and world deniers who turn our backs on this world as though this is the problem. We're people who revel in the goodness of God as we enjoy roast turkey and cranberry sauce and everything. Sorry, that's going to be my only Christmas reference today, okay? As I told you, I don't want to do too much Christmas. You get sick after a while. I heard that in Selfridges they had the decorations up in mid-August, Murray was telling me. So what on earth is that about? Anyway, so flesh does have glory. That's one side of this thing. The other side is what he tells us here. Flesh also fades. Your body is fading. All flesh is like grass, he says, and all its glory like the flower of grass. And this is probably the scariest thing that our society faces. It's the thing we most dread, the thing we most fear. You know, even just this week, I saw a few articles about this girl who had won a legal battle to have her body cryogenically frozen. Why? Because she's hoping that one day, though she was dead because of her disease at the age of 10 or 11, she's hoping that one day in the distant future they can resurrect her body and give her new life. People want to live forever. My wife used to work with um, a doctor who uh, in in her side, sort of just as a side business, would do Botox 
stuff. And so she could charge 200 pounds for five minutes of Botox. You think, why do people pay 200 pounds for a five-minute treatment? The answer is because we don't want to fade. We don't want our flesh to fade and to, to wither away. And you think, well, do you remember at the beginning of the 2000, it's so long ago now, isn't it? The Olympics back in 2012. And uh, how in the opening ceremony, it was basically a worship service to the NHS, wasn't it? Do you remember that? <laughs> you think, well, that, that pretty much just tells you what our greatest idol is. It's health. We want these bodies to last forever. And uh, we, I think it's because intuitively you know that things shouldn't be broken, that, that we were designed to live forever. I think that's why we yearn for it, why we long for it. So my question is, well, if last week we were talking about the goodness of God in creation, and now we're, talk, well, now we're going to focus on something of the brokenness, how can we see God's goodness working even in the brokenness, the brokenness you feel even in your own body, the frustrations you feel with it, and the annoyance and the, even the, the hatred sometimes you can feel towards your own body, or frustration at the very least? That's the question I want us to wrestle with today. You know, people asking me about, well, what about disabilities and, and death? And what about feeling like you're ugly? What about feeling like you're stupid, like the brain that you were given doesn't have enough connections to understand things as well as other people? You know, what about these things? And that's what I want us to think about. And here's one verse that we can jump off from to really get to grips with this. In Romans 8, Paul's talking about how God has allowed his creation to experience this groaning of frustration. He says, The creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God, for the creation was subjected to futility. And there he's, he's trying to, in one word, capture the sense of despair we feel when we see the universe winding down and things breaking. He said it was subjected to futility, not willingly, he says, but because of him who subjected it. He's talking about God there. Him who subjected it in hope. I want you to keep that phrase in mind. Him who subjected it in hope. Because in that phrase, we have the clue through which we can look at this whole theme. God had a good purpose in allowing us to experience the brokenness in our bodies. Him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. What possible good reason can there be for the brokenness of your body? This is the question I'm asking. Let me give you three answers. We're cutting back down from ten because it didn't work too well last week <laughs> and a little bit too long. We're back down to three. But I, I'm not promising it'll be one-third of the length. Here we go. First of all, it's good to feel your frailty because that fosters dependence. <clears throat> I want to take just one lens to just think about this whole theme of your frailty today. And I'm going to take probably the one which is most irrelevant to this particular church, but it's the lens of aging. Uh, it, not, not because you're not aging, but because many of us are young, um, with a few exceptions, and I'm pushing towards the top end of the age brackets. But, but I think we need to do this partly because it's, it's actually the area of weakness the Bible talks about the most. So it gives us a window into how, how we're meant to think about our frailty. And also because you are all aging, whether you want to deny it or not. So, and it can be applied. Everything that we say about aging can be applied to every other kind of bodily weakness that you experience. And I'm going to try and bring it round to that towards the end. But here's what we need to begin with. The Bible's really realistic about our limitations. 
and particularly in this area of aging, it says things like this in Psalm 90. It says, the years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength. In other words, if you're really vigorous, it says 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They're soon gone, and we fly away. Jesus says, who of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to a span of life? I've seen a lot of people who are anxiously trying to extend their span of life, whether it's through juicing or exercise or sleep apps or whatever it is you're using. But I've, I've seen too many people die unexpectedly to be under the illusion that my anxiety about my body can ever lengthen its life. So the Bible's really upfront about this and doesn't try and brush it under the rug. It says, your body is breaking. There's like a countdown and you can't, you can't get around it any which way you want to. And it says this as well. And this is where things get a little bit, you know, this is where the picture gets a little bit gloomy. But we need to go here to begin with. Like back in 1 Peter 2, or 1 Peter 1, it says this, that the life is characterized by fast flourishing and then slow fading. Did I, do you ever have one of those um, grass heads when you were a kid? So it's like a pair of tights stuffed with um, like sawdust or something, and then two eyes stuck on and a mouth and a nose, and then they put grass seed in the top, and you water this thing, and uh, grass grows out of the top like hair. And it looks really good for about two days. And then the, immediately, because you're a kid, you forget to water it, the grass goes yellow, it goes withered, it dies, it looks horrific. And it's pretty much the story of every plant we've ever owned. <laughs> sorry, sorry, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> the Bible's saying that's exactly what your life is like. Saying, first of all, there's this, this element of youth, but actually youth doesn't last that long, does it? It was even shorter in Bible times because youth was like until you're 13 and then you're an adult. Sorry, you get to work. Youth is just a flash. It's a flash flourishing. It's the time of greatest strength. Daniel and his friends were regarded as being very young and handsome. But that was only when they were students in the palace. I'm not sure how long that lasted. Over in Proverbs 20, it talks about youth in this way. It says um, that the glory of young men is their strength. So youth is seen as something beautiful in the Bible and something that, in a way, it captures what God made us to be. Handsome like Daniel, strong like young men. There's a verse earlier in Proverbs where it says that uh, husbands should be delighted in the wife of their youth. Why does it specify that? He's saying that was when she was most radiant, and you're meant to keep rekindling that, even if her body is fading over the years. So there's youth fast flourishing, and then it, it describes in a number of passages the slow decay as your body starts to break. And uh, even in that next verse, in that verse in Proverbs, it says, the glory of young men is their strength. What does it say about old people? It says, the splendor of old men is their gray hair. Is that the most you can say about old people? <laughs> they get gray hair. Wonderful. Um, obviously, it's, it's trying to capture something of the respect and honor that we ought to have towards old, elderly people. But, and even in that, even that one great good thing about growing old, that you should be wiser and that you should have more respect, even that's been taken away from our culture, hasn't it? So what do you have in growing old? Nothing. You're just getting older. And uh, I'm not saying I should, I'm not affirming that, by the way. I'm just saying that's, that's the mentality of our culture. Now, you probably never realized this. There's a, 
because it's actually a little bit cryptic, but there's a passage in Ecclesiastes 12 that describes the aging process in really poetic language. It says this, it begins with this way, it says, remember also your creator in the days of your youth before the evil days come. And then he's trying to confront the reader with the realities of growing old. And so he starts to, to describe it with all this poetic language. He says things like this. He says about age when the strong men are bent. So you imagine, you know, how we grow more stooped as we grow older, grow shorter. I mean, see, grandma is literally about four foot now. I think she's lost about five or six inches, hasn't she? As the old men are bent. It says, and the grinders cease because they are few. In other words, you start losing your teeth. It says, those who look through the windows are dimmed. Just as you can draw the blinds on your windows, it's saying your eyes grow dim and the, light, the world around you is not so crystal clear and bright anymore. It says, and the doors and the street are shut. In other words, your ears, your access to what's happening outside, they begin to close. And you, you don't hear with the same clarity you once did. And then it, it goes on and says, uh, it talks about the almond tree blossoms. There's the white hair. It says, the grasshopper drags itself along. Have you ever seen a dying grasshopper? It's so, such a sad sight. These things are meant to be so like, bouncy, and this thing is just crawling along the ground. It says, that's what it's like when you're in your Zimmer frame walking down the aisles of Sainsbury's. And it says, and desire fails because man is going to his eternal home. I want us to talk about this because we, we have to confront this reality, right? And, and how are we meant to understand the fact that God made the world good but allows us to experience all this weakness? Now, here is my answer. How can any of this be meant for good? And the answer is because weakness is always the means by which we experience our dependence upon God. So you ask me, what good is there in disabilities and, and brokenness and sickness and things like this? And here's one answer. That as you feel your frailty, it fosters dependence upon the living God. I think this is also maybe perhaps a little bit more true when you think about it in its opposite. You remember how Jesus said how hard it is for rich people to enter the kingdom of God. He said it's easier for a a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom. Because he's saying that a rich person often feels totally self-sufficient. They've got everything they need, so they don't feel weakness. They don't feel dependence. They don't need to be driven to God. The same is true when people feel strength in their body and their flesh. And when they feel beautiful and desirable. I don't have any statistics to prove this, but I'm guessing that on average... There are fewer good-looking people in the church. I'm really sorry. (laughs) With a few notable exceptions. (laughs) Why? Because so often when when your world is well-healed, you're wealthy, good-looking, healthy, and all this stuff, you don't feel anything missing from life. Well, you may do. There's a gnawing sense underneath the surface. So often people hide it. But I'm just talking in very general, vague terms at the moment. And so the opposite's also true. It's often in sickness that we turn to God in desperation. Maybe for the first time. That was true for my granddad, my dad's dad. Bitter, bitter atheist. 
despised Christianity, mocked our faith. And uh, it wasn't until he had cancer on his deathbed in hospital that he finally, finally, and this is God's mercy, decided he'd pray. Dad led him to faith, reading Psalm 23 to him. The Lord is my shepherd. And suddenly he realized he was in the valley of the shadow of death and he needed a good shepherd. Now, it may not be the way you want to experience dependence on God, but sometimes it's the only way that will force us to humble ourselves. You feel your frailty and then you experience dependence. And that's a very good thing. You see it in the Bible. Recount numerous stories in the Bible of this going on, but let me just give you two. You may remember back in the book of Two Kings, there's a guy who's the general of um, the Syrian king's army, and this man is called Naaman. So he's one of the most powerful people in the world at the time, but he has a physical ailment. He's got leprosy. And in his desperation, he hears about this prophet Elisha in a country called Israel, one of the countries that they are kind of subjugating. And he goes to find this prophet and he asks for his God to heal him. To cut a long story short, he gets healed. And what does he do? He professes, he confesses with his mouth, there is only one God in this world, the God Yahweh. And then he goes and says, but I need an excuse here because I've got to go back to the palace and I've got to worship in the temple of Rimon, our local God. But when I bow down to that God Rimon, Please understand that my heart will be bowing down to Yahweh. So his sickness takes the most powerful man in the world to humility, to worship the God of another nation. This happens again and again. Now, here's one of the most beautiful examples in the Bible is in John chapter 9. Because there in, in, there's a blind man. Jesus encounters a blind man. And Jesus, it sounds rather cruel at first because just a couple of, Verses after meeting him, Jesus says, as long as I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. That might sound a little bit mocking to you because you think you're standing in front of a blind man saying, I'm the light of the world. It it reminds me of this time. My wife met a friend, Twee, who's who's, uh, been blind since birth. And uh, she she met him in a a church gathering and they were doing like an icebreaker thing where they had to ask each other questions. And so she had a list of questions in front of her and she asked him the first one, what's your favorite color? And then, and then this like deathly moment where she realized, and he's a very gracious guy. He was so sweet about it. She's like, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. She went, oh, let me just ask another one. What's your favorite movie? <laughs> so anyway, John 9. Um, Jesus encounters a blind man and says, I'm the light of the world. Now, what, what kind of point is he making to this guy who's never seen light in his life? He was blind since birth. That is actually specified in the first verse. Now, it only makes sense when you get to the very end of the chapter because he heals this blind guy. Everybody goes crazy. What's going on here? And then Jesus brings it to a conclusion in his opposition to the Pharisees. He says, verse 39, For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see and those who, may see, who see may become blind. Now, he's, he's not just talking about physical ability to see, of course, but he is using this, this guy's physical problem to, to make a bigger point. The people who see with their eyes don't feel any need to look any harder to see the God who stood right in front of them. But the guy who can't see is the one whose eyes are opened and he becomes a worshiper of Jesus Christ. And so this is God's grace to us. 
that in this broken, fallen world, he often uses the very point where you feel most broken to develop dependence upon him in a more profound and important way than if you'd not been broken in the first place. So if you feel ugly, as a Christian, you need to find your desirability in God. And so become secure. If you feel weak, I mean physically weak, you need to find your strength in God and so become mighty as a man or woman of God. Your point of weakness becomes the point at which God meets you in his ability. When you feel old, you seek your rejuvenation in God and so regain and foster the passions that drove you in your youth. When you feel stupid, you seek the knowledge of God and so become wise. It's good to feel your frailty because that fosters dependence. You know it, don't you? You know when things are going well in your body, how easily you take it for granted and forget to pray. And then the minute you feel sick, you're on your knees. God, have mercy on me. I've got a runny nose. (laughs) How amazing that God uses these points of weakness to develop a love for him and dependence on him. Here's the second thing. It is good to feel your mortality because that fosters wisdom. The Bible encourages confrontation with and deep awareness of your mortality, the fact that this body is broken and is going to eventually die, whether unexpectedly or in a slow, uh, drawn-out way. One way or the other, it's going to happen. And you think, well, what possible good comes from that? I was, really, I was fascinated this week. I just chanced to come a little um, thing in the newspaper talking about an experiment they'd done in the States with some basketball players. They took a bunch of amateur basketball players. They split them in half. And then they, um, with one half, they, they subjected them to, uh, to ways of trying to make them more aware of their impending death. These young guys. So they, they did things like this. It says they were either encouraged to, to, to think about death by being asked to write their thoughts on a topic. So they had to like journal about death or something like that. Or they said this is a more subtle way. The guy who was like um, coaching them through the process would wear a T-shirt with a big skull and then the word death written across it. <laughs> it doesn't sound very subtle to me, but that's what it said. So um, he said, and they said that when they began playing, the guys who'd been dwelling on their, their mortality, thinking about their mortality, it says they took more shots, better shots, and they hustled more and ran faster. Interesting, isn't it? So you play better when you're aware that you're going to die. <laughs> wow. And they, they, they actually have a, te- a term for it in psychology. They call it terror management. I love that. I think, it's so, I think it's actually a real amazing window into why we do the things we do. It can explain a lot of human behavior that we have this terror management going on in our hearts, right? Now, I think if you, if you don't know God and you don't have any hope beyond death, What is terror going to do to you? It's going to do one of two things to you, or a combination of both. It's either going to drive you to think that your life is totally futile and make you feel utterly depressed about, what is this life about if I'm going to die anyway? 
And a lot of people, this is the kind of the, the wrestling that you see going on in the book of Ecclesiastes when he says, I tried all these pleasures, food, drink, sex, everything. And he says it was all just vanity, just hot air, just gone. So people either feel the futility of the things that they enjoy in life, the possessions that don't meet their needs, all this kind of stuff, or they go the other way and they feel frantic desperation. A frantic desperation to make the most of what you have now, to cling on to it for dear life, because one day it's going to go. So have as much as you can, as much pleasure, as many possessions. Grab hold of as much as you can in life, because it's all going to be gone in the end. And that's what they said here, just an example. This is how they, they, uh, they described this, this phenomenon with the basketball players. They said this terror management is something that... Ho- which holds that people compensate for anxiety about dying by desperately finding ways to boost their self-esteem. In other words, you try and justify your existence. Make your life count. Give, make a name for yourself. Try and become immortal in some sense. Isn't this why even the wealthiest in this world set up trusts and foundations in their own names now to do good in the world because they know that once their wealth and their bodies have gone and their wealth has gone, the only legacy they'll leave is the good that they've done in this world. They're trying to justify their existence. I'm not saying that's a bad thing to do. I, I wonder why. Isn't it terror management? If you ever saw the 1981 film um, Chariots of Fire, brilliantly written because it's a, it's, it captures a true story of Eric Little, the 1924 or 26 Olympics in Paris, and this godly man and his desire to run because he just enjoyed it and, and he experienced God, God's goodness as he ran. But there is a, another character in the film called Harold Abrahams. And Harold Abrahams is like kind of the, the, the arch competitors, Eric Little and Harold Abrahams. And uh, he gets lucky because Eric Little doesn't end up running in the 100-meter final. Harold Abrahams is, so he's in with a chance to actually win this thing. And there's this beautiful scene in the film where one hour before he goes out onto the track, he's in the room being prepared, and his friend Aubrey is just giving him a massage, loosening his muscles as he's about to go out onto the track to go and run this race. And Harold Abrahams starts opening up his heart to Aubrey, and he, he talks about Aubrey's contentment. He says, that's your secret, contentment. He says, I'm 24, and I've never known it. I'm forever in pursuit, and I don't even know what I'm chasing. He says, in one hour's time, I'll be out there again. I'll raise my eyes and look down that corridor, four feet wide, with 10 lonely seconds to justify my whole existence. But will I? Aubrey, I've known the fear of losing but now I'm almost too frightened to win. I think Harold Abrahams in that line, he captures this aspect of terror management, what it means to be aware of your mortality when you don't know God. Because in one, in, in one moment, he feels both the futility of his life and the desperate, frantic desire to justify his existence by achieving something that will last beyond him. And so you ask, well, What good does it do then for a Christian to become deeply aware of his or her mortality? In the Psalms, there are a number of times when the psalmist prays, make me aware of it, Lord. Like this in Psalm 39, he says, 
O Lord, make me know my end. And what is the measure of my days? Let me know how fleeting I am. Over in Psalm 90, he says, So teach us to number our days, that we may get a heart of wisdom. I think the answer is this. Why is this important? Why do you need to be aware of your mortality? Because when you know God, you'll respond in one of these, or hopefully all of these three ways. Cling, steward, and spend. Here's what I mean. You'll cling, first of all, to what lasts. Isn't that what uh, Peter told us from the passage we read right at the beginning? He says that our flesh is like grass and it's going to fade away. The grass withers, the flower falls. But he says, the word of the Lord remains forever. And then he goes on and says, this is the word. This word is the good news that was preached to you. So here's the first thing. When you become very aware that you are going to die, it reorganizes all of your priorities. And suddenly you think, well, what does actually last? And you realize only God's word, only his gospel, only his promise lasts. Only the guarantee that I will be with him in eternity lasts. And it changes your priorities in life. Everything you do is looked through a new lens. Do you know that word of God? When you think about your death, is it something that fills you with terror because you don't know what's beyond it? Or do you have this anchor, the book of Hebrews says, that goes beyond the veil, like like an anchor that you're pulling towards as you approach death. You know that you're pulling towards something better on the other side of death. Is that true of you? It can be when you understand God's word in the gospel that he's given Jesus to be your savior, to die for your sins, and to give the opportunity of eternal life with him. You cling, steward, and spend. Here's the second one, steward. When you, as the psalmist prays, become very aware of your mortality, it reorganizes your priorities so that you steward your time and your energies and your days better than ever. You think every second that you are alive, you are spending your life. Investing it in something. Pursuing something. God's given you a set number of days, a set amount of resources and gifts. And they vary from person to person. But what he has given you, you are called to steward. I was wandering down um, South Bank yesterday and we passed like one of those open bookstalls. And there was a book on the table that just said, 1,000 movies to see before you die. And I was thinking, really? I like movies like The Next Guy, but I am not about to sit down and watch 1,000 movies. I don't think that's a very good stewardship of my time and energy and talents. How are you stewarding your time, energy, and talents? Because before you know it, you just fretted the whole lot away. And a person who says, I'm mortal, and I've got this much, knows They need to steward it well before the living God. Cling, steward, and spend. Here's a third one, then spend. Spend yourself lavishly for Christ. It's so wonderful, isn't it, to know that you have something bigger than you to live for. And something that will last beyond the end of this world. 
it gives you such deep joy. It gives you a totally new way of looking at your life and your energy and your time and your health and everything. One of the most precious moments in Scripture is when you know, we, get, we grow to really know and love Paul when we read his letters because he wrote most of the New Testament, almost most of it. And uh, he's such a passionate man who lives for the glory of Jesus Christ. But I think my favorite of all of his writings is 2 Timothy because it's the last letter, 2 Timothy, the last one he wrote, and he's, he's very close to death when he writes it. And he reflects back on his life in that letter. Reflects back as he pours out his wisdom to his young mentor, Timothy. Pours in like he's trying to reorganize Timothy's priorities in the view of Paul's clarity of mind as he approaches death. He's about to be martyred. He's going to be put to death by the Romans. And one of the things he says about himself is this. He says, for I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. He's using the language of the sacrificial system from the Old Testament. Because back in the Old Testament, people brought all kinds of things to bring them to the temple. They might bring a bull occasionally, or a lamb, or a goat, or doves if you were poor. And you'd bring grain, and you'd bring wine. And you'd pour these things out or kill them. You would sacrifice them up to God. It was all meant to prefigure the final sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So we understand that. But we also recognize in that whole system of the sacrifices that we have a picture there that our lives and our possessions actually belong to God. And Paul regarded himself as a sacrifice. Isn't that what he tells us in Romans 12 when he tells us to to offer ourselves up as living sacrifices to the living God? You keep wanting to crawl off the altar and go and do your own thing. He says, no, get back on the altar. You are a living sacrifice. You belong to the living God. And then he thinks about his own life as it withers and melts away and he's approaching his martyrdom. What does he say? He says, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. I fought the fight, the good fight. I finished the race. I have kept the faith. I'd love to be able to say that with my last breath. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Spend. Spend yourself lavishly for Jesus. Everything you have and are. Have you done that? Have you ever made that decision? You know, as a Christian, have you ever made that decision where you've, you've You've had a moment before God where you've said, whatever comes, whatever you give me, it's all for you. I want to obey you completely. I remember one of this country's most gifted preachers from a a few decades ago. I heard him speak once and he said, he's a man called David Porson. He said, I said to God once when I was young, He says, whatever you tell me to do, I'll I'll do it if you show me clearly enough that that's what I'm meant to do. So he set his heart to live a life of obedience to the living God. Have you made that decision? It is a decision. Every day you're making decisions. What you're running for, what you're oriented to, your trajectory in life. Have you decided at the most fundamental level that this life is going to be poured out for Jesus? There is no more fulfilling way to live. Look at the joy in 2 Timothy 
as Paul approaches death. He has no regrets. He has no fear. He has a full heart. That's what an awareness of your mortality can do for you. Here's the last thing. It's good to feel frustration because that fosters yearning. At the very beginning, we started in 2 Corinthians, and Paul talks about groaning in our bodies. I don't know how you feel about the body you're in, the life that you have. I think there's very few people who don't wish that they could change a thing or two about themselves, right? And uh, some of it's very misguided and sad, you know, when people have very, very warped perspectives on themselves. But some of it is okay. In Romans 8, again, where where we read that verse, um, that the whole of creation has been subjected in hope. He goes on and says, we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. So here's the big idea I want us to finish on. That it's okay to feel frustration in the body you're in. As good as it is, as wonderful as it is, as grateful as we need to be for it, it is okay to feel frustration because things are not yet as they're meant to be. So I know we don't have anyone here today, but if you're wheelchair bound, it would be okay to feel frustration with that and to long for a new body. When you long for a better mind, it's okay to wish that you had a better mind to know God better, to know his word better, to store in the memory his goodness and to use it for his glory. It's okay to feel frustration that you get exhausted so easily. It's okay. It's okay to feel frustration. But I think we need to balance this out a little bit and say, you know, on the one hand, that while it's okay to feel frustration because it means we're acknowledging that sin has ravaged our bodies and this, this created world that we're in. It's what happens with that frustration that's important here. This is why I emphasized so much last week the goodness of your created nature. Here's one of the bad things that can happen with this frustration. And I want to speak sensitively but pastorally to, I know many of us struggle with these things, but when you feel frustration in your own body, it can become so dangerous when it becomes self-pity. Let me just give you a few reasons why that might be true. First of all, you turn inwards. Self-pity turns you in on yourself. It becomes a form of selfishness where you become self-oriented. Your eyes look inwards at your own problems rather than outwards. The second thing, you fail to love others. It's the flip side of what we just said. You fail to love others as you should. Or... Others just become the means by which you gain more affirmation and try and fill up the love bucket that's empty inside. Self-pity means you start saying thank you to God for his good gifts and, uh, or simply just don't see them. You know how often when we focus on the brokenness of our bodies, we forget all the wonderful good things that God's given to us. Self-pity means that you can even start to idolize the flesh in a really warped and twisted way. Because even as you 
feel the frustration, the brokenness of this body you're in, what's your solution? You think, if I had better this, that, or the other, I would have a happy and fulfilled life. Now, that's just idolatry. Because the Bible says, no, the only way you can live a truly happy, fulfilled, and joyful life is to know the living God and worship him. So it exposes a kind of body worship in our hearts when so much of our emotional life is controlled by the disappointment with or frustration with the brokenness of our flesh. Self-pity can mean that you start to covet what others have. Who hasn't done that? I think we all have, right? And obviously coveting is wrong. Self-pity means that you can think of God in wrong ways. You think that he can't be loving, that he's, he's allowed you to experience this, that, or the other. You know, this may not even be true of you right now, but friends, we're all going to feel brokenness at some point. We are. And how we deal with that is so vital. Will you sink in on yourself and become full of self-pity? Or will you, like Paul, recognize, no, the groaning is meant to give birth to something beautiful? And here's why I want us to turn around and think positively. Here's how the Bible's telling us to handle the frustration with the brokenness of our created nature. Three things very briefly. First of all, that you remember that others have gone before you. When Paul's talking in 2 Corinthians about his own body, and he, he must be getting a bit older here, he says, our outer self is wasting away. Here's what um, John Piper, how he described it like this. He says, Paul can't see the way he used to. There were probably no glasses. We actually know that Paul's eyesight was failing because he signs off one of his letters saying, I'm writing with, with my own hand now, and you can see what big handwriting I have. So it's like one of these, you know, my grandma used to have bad eyes, and she had massive handwriting. And that was Paul. His eyes were failing. How disappointing and frustrating to him, a man who was a scholar who read and understood things for a living. He can't hear the way he used to. He doesn't recover from beatings the way he used to. How disappointing for him. (laughs) Paul was never one to hold back from the fray. When he saw a town on the horizon, he always had to make that calculation in his mind. I might get beaten up in that town. It never stopped him walking in and telling people about Jesus. He was too happy about Jesus not to share but as he got older, he must have felt it a bit more. When he got whipped or beaten, bad things happened to his body. Piper goes on, his strength walking from town to town doesn't hold up the way it used to. He sees the wrinkles in his face and neck. His memory is not as good. His joints get stiff when he sits still. In other words, he knows that he, like everyone else, is dying. His outer man is decaying. That's the threat to his courage and joy. I think this is why I'm telling you the first thing to do whenever you feel a frustration with your created nature is to remember other people have gone before you. And it's very hard to feel self-pity when you start to look at some of the things other people have struggled with. And many of them worse things and had more joy than you have. This convicts me. You have people like Joni Erickson Tada, paralyzed from here down. So joyful. Here's the second thing. Fix your heart on your true and lasting hope. That's what he tells us again in 2 Corinthians, because he says, 
We have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. But in this tent we grow, this body, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. He's talking about the full biblical Hebrew hope of the future, which was not the warped medieval painting version of heaven that we're going to look forward to being floating spirits in clouds. The biblical view is that God is invading earth. And that for a little time in the middle, you're going to die and your spirit is going to leave the body behind, but there's a future in store. Paul describes that as being naked. You're going to be without your body for a while, but he says in the future there will be a great resurrection. When God starts to mend all those broken bodies and make them new, and then with it, the whole world, as the, as the new Jerusalem is depicted. And I don't know whether it's pictorial or metaphorical, whatever the language is, but it says Jerusalem comes down from heaven and is on earth. In other words, the kingdom of God begins to fill and renew the earth. And all of this brokenness is undone. And Paul says, that's our yearning. We don't really want to be unclothed, except that we get to go and be with Jesus. And it's actually better to be with him and out of this body for a, t- a time than to be in our bodies and away from Jesus. So he has this kind of to and fro going on in this passage that we read at the start. But it's, the basic instinct is this. My yearning is pulling me forward. My yearning for the future God has in mind. In other words, he is heavenly minded. And I, I think that most of the sins that we struggle with are because we, we are not heavenly minded. Sins like fear and anxiety and the lust that we um, indulge and all these kinds of things. Most of it is because we, we don't think about the future the way we ought to. But when you have a good frustration with this body, the kind of frustration that Paul experienced here in 2 Corinthians, it, it begins to foster in you a holy yearning for something better. So as you experience frustration, it grows this yearning. God has something better in store. Christians of all people need to be fixed on that. Here's my last thing I want to say. That this frustration should lead to you focusing on what you can do with this body, not what you can't. We should never look to this body to fulfill everything that we long for. But what we do do with it is we spend it for Jesus, as I've been saying. And here's how he puts it in 2 Corinthians 5. He says, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. You've got to remember, he's saying this in the light of his own frustration with his body that is decaying and wasting away. I think what he's trying to do is reorientate our eyes. He's saying you can either waste your time fighting with, frustrated with, and annoyed with the body you're in, or you can use it, sow it, and spend it for Jesus. And when, like Paul, you think eternal rewards are what I'm living for, not just the pleasures of this life here and now. Like the basketball players, you hustle. You play a bit faster, a bit harder. You do a bit more for Jesus. And in this... Jesus himself is our example. Jesus didn't have a perfect body. In Isaiah 53, it tells us about him that he, uh, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him. 
You know, some, some men do have a form and majesty that they draw attention to themselves, whether through their height. I was just preparing in a coffee shop just this, uh, this morning beforehand, and there was a guy, one of the tallest men I've ever seen, and his, he literally had to position his head between the pipes and the ceiling of Cafe Nero <laughs> so that he wouldn't, and then he had to stoop. He was like this, standing by the till. I was thinking, wow, that guy draws attention. And, uh, and, and he says about Jesus, he was nothing to look at. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. He says, and no beauty that we should desire him. He didn't have the wealth that draws attention, and he didn't have the physical stature that draws attention. He was just an ordinary bloke when you looked at him. But Jesus didn't look at his body as something to wrestle with and fight with and be frustrated with. He knew he'd been given that body for a purpose, and it was to spill his blood for you. To spend himself for us. Which is why even in his earthly ministry you see him just tired out and weary so often because he is giving all of his energy to people. Whether it's the crowds clamoring around him or the individuals who seek and search him out because they want some counsel or some healing or something. And it's like he didn't have the perfect body but what he had He poured it out for us. It was broken for us. Friends, that's what Christ is calling for you to do with the body you're in. It's a beautiful thing. You may have a very warped view of it. But rather than thinking about what it can't do and what it isn't, think about what it can do and what it is for Christ. And as you walk in his footsteps, learn to spill it out for him, to spend it for him. Remember that the reason he spent his body for us was to rescue us, to redeem us, and to give us the chance of having new bodies one day that will be beautiful, that will be whole, that will be unbroken.